Good morning. We're in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians today, and we start with a verse that begins at verse 9, and it says, So, and you know what that means to me. I don't want you to find out later, but I want to tell you now just about what so means. Thank you for standing. Paul's talking in the early part of chapter 5 about having um, a tent for a body or for wrappings, and how that does not compare to bricks for longevity and for challenge. I want to back up one verse and say this represents kind of where that discussion goes before we get to our assignment for the day. Verse 8 says, we are confident, I say, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with Christ. So verse 9 now. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then a bridge into the second part of the chapter, the ministry of reconciliation. He continues, verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. The word of the Lord. We'll be talking about the fear of the Lord today. Um... Chapter 19 of Genesis, we have the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll, comments on this story. He says, the sordid account of Sodomite lifestyle is graphically portrayed in Genesis chapter 19, and it's anything but funny. The place was shot through with open and shameless perversions. According to verse 4, these were practiced by both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And in, in verse 20 of chapter uh, 18, previous to, to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says God declared that their sin was exceedingly grave. And Swindoll says, for some strange reason, Lot was drawn to Sodom. He and his family lived among these people and no doubt became accustomed to their ways, possibly viewing their, the perversions as acceptable. Then God stepped in. Jealous for Lot's deliverance, he clearly announced the evacuation plan. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains lest you be swept away. What a gracious act. The Lord cared enough for Lot and his family to map out a plan that would lead to safety. Nothing complicated, no riddles, just 
Run for your life and don't look back. Don't stop until you're in the mountains. Behind this serious warning, a severe extermination plot was unfolding. Doomsday was approaching. The worst holocaust in the history of ancient civilization. And it says in verses 24 through 25 of Genesis chapter 19, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And Lot, well, he was running for his life with his two daughters nearby. The family was saved. No, not all the family. Mrs. Lot didn't make it. Apparently, she couldn't bring herself to believe God meant what he said. It's interesting how Scripture records her demise. But his wife, from behind him, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And then Swindoll says, question, what was behind him? Well, who knows for sure. I'd suggest that she was still attached to that lifestyle. She willfully refused to cut off her emotional ties. All this business of running away and not looking back was awfully extreme, terribly unrealistic. The bottom line of Mrs. Lott's philosophy could have been etched on her salt block tombstone. There's no need to take God seriously. And he goes on to say, I know, no more, I know of no philosophy more popular today. It's the reason we're caught these days in the do-your-own-thing syndrome. What a subtle web the spider of self has woven. Millions are stuck. And instead of screaming, I'm caught, they shout with a smile, I'm free. If you don't take God seriously, then there's no need to take your marriage seriously or the rearing of children or such character traits as submission, faithfulness, sexual purity, humility, repentance, and honesty. End of quotes. There were, some, there were some things that Mrs. Lott didn't know or believe about God, and her failure to take him seriously resulted in tragic consequences. And Mrs. Lott is not alone. I would say that a majority of people in our world, maybe our nation, and even some in the church, do not really take God seriously. To many people... To many people, they've sugar-coated God so that the only thing they see are those things that they like and are comfortable with. But even if people ignore the side of God's character that makes them uneasy or just plain pretend it doesn't exist, it doesn't change the truth of who God is. The same God who in His holiness could not bear the sin the perverseness and wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and so exercise judgment on those cities is the very same God that we worship today. His character, His word, His attitude towards sin has not changed one bit. Why? Well, because first of all, God is immutable. God is immutable. He's unchanging. A.W. Tozer writes this about God's unchanging nature. 
God never changes or cools off in his affections or loses enthusiasm. His attitude towards sin is, sin is now the same as it was when he drove out the sinful man from the eastward garden, and his attitude toward the sinner the same as when he stretched forth his hands and cried, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God will not compromise, and He need not be coaxed. He cannot be persuaded to alter His Word, nor talked into answering selfish prayer. In all our efforts to find God, to please Him, to commune with Him, we should remember that all change must be on our part. I am the Lord, I change not. We have but to meet His clearly stated terms, being our... Bring our lives into accord with His revealed will and His infinite power will become excuse me and and His infinite power will become instantly operative toward us in the manner set forth through the gospel and the scripture. God does not change, folks. God's immutability is something we should be grateful for. We should rejoice in that. Because God is unchanging, He will always be righteous and holy. He will never turn from good to bad. Because God is unchanging, He will always seek after His lost and wayward children. Because God is unchanging, He is completely reliable and all His promises are true. Because God is unchanging, we have a hope and a future. So if God is unchanging, why do so many fail to, to take Him seriously? Well, I think the answer lies in the fact that there is an attitude missing in many people's lives. They do not know what it is to fear the Lord. And if there is one attitude that is crucial, critical, essential, vital, indispensable in taking God seriously, it is the fear of the Lord. Why do we find ourselves in this condition of failing in that regard? Well, possibly because our society, as have others around the world and throughout history, has a tendency to make God in our own image, in man's image. We kind of bring Him down to this level. When we do that, God becomes changeable, just like we are. Fortunately, God does not fit our preconceived ideas. He cannot be squeezed into our mold. He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. He has given us a clear picture of His nature and character. And if we are to live rightly on this earth and have the type of impact that will ensure others to live be sure that we recognize and follow that biblical revelation of who God is accurate. And when we begin to think in terms of God's holiness, righteousness, and justice, our response will be a tremendous sense of what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. So let's take a look at verse 11 in our text. Paul says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord we try to persuade Obviously, Paul knew what it means to fear the Lord. I think that it's 
for us to understand as well. What does that mean? Well, in Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So there are two key ideas expressed in this verse. Number one, if we are to have wisdom, the right attitude toward the Lord is fundamental. And number two, the right attitude toward the Lord comes only from an accurate understanding of the Lord. I'm sure, has a favorite aspect or aspects of God's character that we find appealing. It may be what we tend to focus on, but we don't have the freedom to pick just the the aspects of God's character that we want. So then, and this is our next point, our view of God must be complete. God is revealed in Scripture as the one who will be our final judge. He is the one who acts in total righteousness and complete justice. He is described as the one who is utterly pure and holy and cannot tolerate sin. And any view of God that does not include these truths is inaccurate and inadequate. Paul says in verse 10 of our text, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Of course, the balance to, this, to balance this picture, we must remember that God is also a God of grace that is prepared to deal with us in mercy and forgiveness in a way that we don't deserve. It was the old country preacher Vance Havner that once said, if God dealt with people today as he did in the days of Ananias and Sapphira, every church would need a morgue in the basement. Praise God for his boundless grace. When we acknowledge our sinfulness before God's holiness, we qualify to receive his mercy and his grace. 2 Corinthians chapter, later in this chapter, verses 20 through 21, tell us that we need to be reconciled to God. It also tells us that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. Again, there are two truths that are apparent in these verses. Number one, we are sinful. Number two, we've been estranged and separated from God. Some people feel like everything is fine between God and and them, they perceive no separation. As far as they're concerned, their sins aren't a big deal, and God doesn't re- isn't really bothered much about it. These people have never sought to be reconciled or have their sins forgiven. The reason? They have never been struck by the immensity of their sin and the awfulness of separation from God. And it's because they have an inaccurate understanding of who God is that Paul also reminds us of our accountability to God for the lives we have lived. There's no such thing as shirking our responsibility. We will all be accountable someday. So we must bring ourselves under the scrutiny of God's revelation of Himself in His Word and evaluate ourselves accordingly. 
It is only when we do this that we will accurately see God as He is and ourselves as we are. Mankind in all of our best intentions, in all our most noble trying, in all our grandest desires is totally incapable of standing up under the awesome holiness, righteousness, justice, and judgment of God. In reality, of course, it is one thing to have an accurate understanding, but it is another matter to respond appropriately with the fear of the Lord. Stuart Briscoe provides an excellent illustration of this point with his own childhood. He said, I had the privilege of being brought up in a situation that every small boy in the face of the earth would envy. We've all heard the expression, as happy as a kid in a candy store. Well, I was brought up in a candy store. Well, actually in the home just behind it. Every time I went to our house, I walked past the candy counter. Every time I came back in, I walked past the candy counter. But I had been taught from my earliest days that candy was the, that the candy was not mine. If my parents gave permission, I could have a piece. Otherwise, I wasn't even to touch it. One day, when nobody was around, I walked past the candy counter and the temptation was just too much to bear. I popped some candy into my mouth. What I didn't know, however, was that my father was behind a display of produce and that he had made a peephole to enable him to keep an eye on the store while working behind the counter cutting cheese and butter. Suddenly, I heard a voice saying, Stuart, come here. If it had been the voice of God himself, I would not have been more dumbstruck. I was totally flummoxed. That's a word you don't hear very often anymore, do you? I, don't know, I didn't know which way to go. Now, my father, who wore a white apron, which, for reasons known only to my mother, was starched daily, it was blindingly bright, tied in the front with a big bow from which dangled long apron strings. And to give some idea of how big I was at the time, I had just recently announced that I was high, as high as Daddy's shop rope, which meant I had reached the level of his navel. As I walked very subdued before him, I remember vividly the awful starch whiteness before my eyes. The depth of his voice seemed to come from the height of heaven and the effect was awe-inspiring. Then he gave me a talk about whose sweets they were, about what I was to do if I wanted one, about the fact that I had taken one without permission. He went on to remind me that my action was stealing, that thieves were grown men who started out as little boys who steal candies. And that if I, if I continued, I would end up in prison. And he said, and I recall thinking to myself, We've come a long way from one candy to prison. <laughs> Nevertheless, <clears throat> he got the message across. It was stern. It was straight. It came, it came from high up. That, impe that impeccable knot right in front of my eyes. The impact was phenomenal. And I can promise you I never took another candy again. That episode taught me more powerfully than any other that you don't touch what isn't yours. But then he goes on to say, the reason I was able to handle that kind of fatherly reprimand was the look of love in my father's eyes. 
His sternness and straightness, His justice and judgment were not divorced from His love. I knew He was right, and as a small boy, I responded to it. Each of us must come to see God like that in the reality of His person. And then we must respond to Him in the appropriate way. You know, the prophet Isaiah is a wonderful example of how a man or woman responds appropriately appropriately to an encounter with the holiness of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, he writes, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His temple, excuse me, the train of His robe filled the temple, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And how did Isaiah respond to this scene? Well, he said, Woe is me, I am ruined. I am, man of, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I don't know if you do what I have done, but I read that passage of Scripture and I try to put myself in Isaiah's place. What must that have been like? And how would I have responded? The prophet's right understanding, his realization of who God was, resulted in reverence to the Lord. We see this in his sense of smallness in the presence of God. In his humility and submission to divine authority, and his sense of shame in the presence of God's purity and and holiness. And that's what it means to fear or reverence the Lord. Now, let me change directions for just a few moments and look at what hinders a proper understanding and response to God. In in Psalm 36, 1 and 2, and Julie was reading through uh, the... Were you in your year Bible this morning? And this verse came up. Psalm 36, 1 and 2, David says of the unbeliever, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. This verse is saying that when an individual has no fear of the Lord, it is because the Lord is small and insignificant in his or her thinking. Don't you wonder what people's concept of God is sometimes? When a person is totally absorbed with themselves and God is on the fringe of their life, if if he is considered at all, then it is likely that they will be so self-centered that they will never detect nor hate their own sin. We see this philosophy in New Age teaching. Everyone has this unlimited potential. We can all become gods, and so we are to be self-focused. And when you believe that, you become your own standard for right and wrong. And so we're able to excuse or simply ignore sin in our lives. Not so with the response of reverence or fear. Through the work of the Holy Spirit revealing to us who God is, we detect the reality of sin in our lives. Once we realize what it is, then we are ready to reject it 
for what it is. We're ready to deal with it. We throw out all the excuses that would displace blame and call it what the Bible calls it. Sin. We do that because we have an overwhelming and convicting sense of the holiness, righteousness, and justice of God. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil, especially in our own lives. So, then the fear of the Lord is something we learn and teach to others. In Psalm 34.11 it says, Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The knowledge that is available and what we can teach others and train them is growing exponentially all the time. In spite of this, the sad truth is that fewer and fewer are taught what it is to respond in reverence to God, to fear the Lord. When people truly grasp the fear of the Lord, they are so concerned about it that they are eager to teach it to others, to pass it on to their children. So that from time to time, they can understand, or the children can understand, those we're teaching can understand who the Lord really is. One thing that characterizes a person who fears the Lord is that they are eager to learn more about the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is not only something we learn, but something we choose Proverbs 1.29 says that people hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. It still happens today. For example, some men and women, to put it in secular terms, choose to fool around. God's Word calls them adulterers. They engage in these activities in secret. They lead double lives so that spouses, friends, bosses or church families won't find out. Most of these people know what they're doing is wrong, but they choose to block God out. They choose to minimize the seriousness of what they're doing. They choose not to fear the Lord. In contrast, people who fear the Lord are willing to choose rightly, are willing to learn more of that motivating factor and recognize that the fear of the Lord will teach them to avoid evil. Jay Carty illustrates this principle in his book, Counterattack. He says, you may be saying, Jay, I want to hear about the love of God. Don't preach that fear of God to me. He goes on to say, listen carefully. I spend half of my time on the road, and there's been an occasion or two when it's just been a solid dose of the fear of the Lord that kept my nose clean. I have even gotten to the point of being willing to disobey God But I was afraid of the consequences. I knew the outcome would be too severe. A time of physical pleasure followed by a few seconds of zing can never be a substitute for destroying a family, ruining a ministry, and causing the dominoes who look to you to stumble and fall. So the fear of the Lord keeps us from getting so close to the fire that we get burned and are eventually destroyed. The fear of the Lord really is the beginning of wisdom. 
And in Proverbs 16, verse 6, it says, Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. So, what happens when the fear of the Lord motivates a person? Well, first of all, it produces disciplined living. According to Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we find the Ten Commandments listed, the commandments were given by God to help His, to help His people learn the fear of the Lord and to keep them from sinning. People who fear the Lord recognize His commands and are motivated to discipline their lives that they might keep them. So it produces disciplined living. The second thing it produces is holy living. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, it says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. People who fear the Lord want to live holy lives. Oh, it's not a desire we're born with. Just try telling your friends or fellow workers or neighbors that your highest aspiration is to live a holy life and watch their reaction. In most cases, they'll treat you like you have a screw loose. So how does that desire to live a holy life come into one's life? Well, when you understand the holiness of God, when you understand that we come from holy God, are loved by holy God, then desire to be holy, we then submit ourselves to God and seek His power in our lives to live holy lives. Our, our you know, our, our society is characterized by what might be called lax living, loose morals, and superficiality. And these attitudes have even entered at times into the fellowship of believers. But when we are willing to admit that God is neither impressed nor pleased with us, when we accept the fact that we will one day stand before Him and give an account of our lives then we begin to show reverence. Our reverence leads to repentance, which leads to a desire for renewal and revival in our lives. See, the fear of the Lord leads inevitably to disciplined and holy living. But it also produces concerned living. Back to our text, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade Men. See, because we understand the fear of the Lord, we're concerned about people and look for ways to demonstrate that concern. A, a part of our unique mission as a church is to win the loss for Christ. And that, now, that probably doesn't sound all that unique, except that many churches today have lost that vision. Why? Well, there's a lack of concern in the church today for people who don't know Christ. And the reason is that we don't honestly believe they're lost. We don't really believe in the judgment of God and as a result don't believe that people can be lost eternally. And if you don't believe those things and you also don't believe that 
People need to repent of their sins and accept Jesus as Savior. Boy, that's a series of dominoes falling, isn't it? See, a a fear of the Lord demonstrates itself in a commitment to evangelism and missions. It leads to a genuine belief in the lostness of humanity, their inherent sinfulness and the inevitability of the judgment that faces them someday. If we fear the Lord, we will fear for those who do not fear the Lord. By the way, think, where's the love in all this? I'm talking about that next week. Okay. What a wonderful thing it is to rightly, rightly understand the Lord and respond appropriately to him. I mean... Not to just see one aspect or one side of God's character and to respond appropriately to him. It's a powerful motivating factor, or should be. And and the key to all of it is a balanced view of God. God, of course, is gracious. Of course, he is merciful. Of course, he is loving. Of course, he is forgiving. But he is also holy, just, and righteousness. And our judge. Therefore, if we are to live rightly before him, both sides of God's character must be built into our understanding. Only then will we incorporate a proper fear of the Lord in our relationship with him. We must see God for who he is in all aspects of his character. There's a song I love, and I listen to these guys a lot. And they're, they're not the latest. I think they came around in the 70s, maybe. They were called the Maranatha Singers, and they did a lot of real scripture songs. And I want to close with this today. The title of the song is, We Choose the Fear of the Lord. And I want to, the, the words will be up with it, and I... My encouragement would be, make this your prayer as you listen to and read the words of this song. Go ahead. It's all right, guys. We've got, as long as they've got the word from us. Thunderstorm. As long as we've got the words on the screen, we don't have to have the volume as, as loud. That's fine. Go ahead and play it. If we can. Thank you.
Oh, Father, I want that to be my commitment. I choose the, the word, I choose, choose the way, I choose the fear of the Lord. May that be our commitment as your people. Oh, we love the fact that you are loving and kind and gracious and merciful. But we also need to see you as a God who is righteous, holy, and just. A complete view. And then choose your way, choose your word, and choose to fear you. And as best we can, teach others the fear of the Lord as well. May that be a commitment, a commitment, a prayer of our lives today. Thank you for your presence in our midst through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the way you have spoken to our hearts through your word. And, and may it not be something that you know, we, we heard and say, well, that was nice and go on. But may it be the kind of thing, Lord, that sticks, that comes to our mind, that is a reminder to us. So that, Father, we do walk in ways that honor you, that reverence you, that we choose the fear of the Lord. And, Father, we pray these things. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.